And all of God's people said, praise the Lord. Thank you, Jeremy. Thank you, team. The concept, the concept of humility is probably one of the most under, misunderstood characteristic. There are some who think Sorry, he got me all with that song. He, he. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Praise God. There are some who think that humility is synonymous with being a wimp, spineless, a doormat. There are some who think that humility means that you are always agreeable with the prevailing culture, with the prevailing thought. Never take a stand, especially publicly. There are some who are think that humility is always accommodating to the whims of others, regardless of the truth. There are some who think that humility is being on all sides of the issues. This kind of understanding of humility could not be further from biblical truth and the definition and I was thinking of a way to explain this, and I read the story about the two brothers who grew up on a farm. One brother left and became a big-shot politician. The other one stayed home and became a farmer. And the big-shot politician hasn't been home in a long time, and one day he showed up and visiting with his brother, and he looked at his farming, farmer brother and he said to him, why don't you hold your head high like I do? I let no one push me around. I bow my head to no God or man. The farmer brother reflected for a minute, and he said to his brother, he said, Squire, see that field of grain yonder? Only the heads that are empty stand up. <laughs> the ones that are filled with grain always bow down. Humility, beloved, has nothing to do with how many times a person says he or she is humble. Humility has nothing to do with how fast a person changes color. Or humility has nothing to do with a person who, for the sake of wanting to be liked, compromises the truth and the conviction from the Word of God. No, a million knows. But humility has everything to do with obedience to the truth of the Word of God. Humility has everything to do with being rooted and established in Christ and in His Word. Humility has everything to do with submission of one's thoughts, one's opinions, one's ideas to the truth of the Word of God. 
Here's a sad story that I'm familiar with, and it happened some years ago. A popular entertainer who immediately after converted to Christ, he set up his own evangelistic association. And wham, he was immediately experiencing success. After all, we love famous people. Our culture loves famous people, as if Christianity is not really real until it gets the household seal of approval from some celebrity somewhere. In this particular case, because of this entertainer, was never rooted and established in the Word of God. After this fame and success, after this popularity, he neglected his family. Today, he's totally ineffective in his witness. Here's what his pastor said, which I really love. He said, his branches went out further than his roots. And when that happens, he continued, you will eventually topple. How true. Now, beloved, no matter how gifted a person may be, no matter how clever a person may be, no matter how great a communicator a person may be, his or her effectiveness is only fleeting if it is not rooted and established in the truth of the Word of God. And that's precisely what the Apostle Paul is saying to the Corinthians and is saying to every one of us. I hope you're listening. Turn with me if you haven't already to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and we're only going to cover the first 13 verses, and I'll finish the chapter in the next message. Now, if you're visiting with us, uh, we are in the midst of a series of messages entitled Healthy Living in a Sick World, based on the first letter of Paul to the Corinthians. Here, Paul makes it very clear that true humility begins by willingness to be a servant of Jesus. I heard a television preacher one time saying, we must never call ourselves servants of Jesus because Jesus himself said, I no longer called you servants, I call you friends. Listen to me. When Jesus says this, he was wanting the disciples and wants us to come on the level of intimacy of a friend. Never intended that we treat him like the little pal down the street. We exercise arrogance in our attitude toward God, and we take him for granted. Paul, Peter, James, Jude, every one of them felt honored and privileged to call themselves servants of Jesus. Look at verse 1, please. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. So then, men ought to regard us as servants of Christ, as those who entrusted with secret things of God. Remember, Paul is addressing this foolishness that was taking place in that church of being divided and taking sides and creating division in the church, a division that was not created by Paul or Apollos, but created by the people. I'm going to come to that in a minute. But the word that Paul uses here is literally is the lowest galley slave. It's a person who is rowing all day long in the bottom of the ship. Rowing, 
rowing. Later, of course, it came that the, the Greek word became uh, uh, referencing to anybody who puts himself under authority. All Christian believers, especially those who are serving, they are subordinate and subject to the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes we forget that, and we go to business for ourselves. And that is why those who accommodate to people's whims and fancies and fantasies eventually will fail in their impact. You see, we judge by the appearance. All them may temporarily have success, like our entertainer friend that I just told you about. But sooner or later, they're implode, because without the Word of God, they cannot last. Listen to me. The servant of Christ is to serve His Word. Did you get that? The true servant of Christ serves His Word. Why am I saying this? Because the Word of God is His self-revelation. How do you know God without seeing in His self-revelation in the Bible? Otherwise, we all have these mystical experiences, and everybody else has got this idea and that idea, and that's what we're feeling now. And that, my beloved friend, is the core and the crux of humility. As I said, humility has nothing to do with appearances or popularity. Humility has nothing to do with, 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 with what somebody says. Humility has everything to do with willingness to be subordinate to God and His Word. Humility has everything to do with saying all theories, all methodologies, all programs that are contrary to God's Word must go. Oh, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. <laughs> this goes uh, uh, against the public opinion. I know. This goes against the grain. This, goes, this is not very popular. This will go against what's culturally acceptable. This will go against political correctness. So what? Let me tell you something that you, lit, not literally, but figuratively, you can take to the bank. <laughs> a true servant of Jesus will always, always, always be an enigma and a paradox to this fallen world. <laughs> if it's popular in this fallen world, it's not a true servant of Jesus Christ. You see, the world system will never understand or comprehend that we see the unseen, that we conquer by yielding, that we find rest under a yoke, that we reign by serving, that we made great by becoming little, that we are exalted by becoming humble, that we become wise by being fools for Jesus' sake, that we are made free by becoming bond slaves to Jesus. We possess all things by having nothing, that we are strong by being weak, that we triumph by defeat, that we have victory and glory in our infirmity, and that we live by dying. Amen. Question, what is the first concern for the servant of the Lord? Not how to be happy. I know. It's not, it's not it. But how pleasing to the Master. How pleasing am I to the Master? 
Paul did not say the servant of Jesus must be eloquent, the servant of Jesus must be clever, or the servant of Jesus must be an extraordinary communicator. No, 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 no. The servant of Jesus must humble himself under Jesus. Look at verse 2, 1 Corinthians 4. It is required of the steward. Now, I want you, those who have your Bible in front of you, to answer me. It is required of the steward to be what? Can I get it from everybody? Can you look at the Scripture? Look at the Scripture. Okay. Look at the Scripture. Look at verse 2. It is required of the steward to be what? I told you on the last message, for those of you who are here, that on that great day of Jesus's, not the great day of judgment for those who are going to hell and those who are going to heaven, I'm talking about those who are going to heaven, that there's going to be a day in which we stand, every one of us who believe in Jesus, stand before the tribunal of God for our reward. And I told you in the last message that I'm absolutely convinced, I am convinced as I'm standing here today, that on that great day, uh, some of the so-called big preachers will be way, 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 way in the back, and there's some people you have never heard of who will be standing next to Jesus. Well, before I get carried away, I want to get to the text. I want to show you here the Apostle Paul is saying that you and I, every single day, facing three courts. Three courts. Every day we face the three courts. There is what I call the lower court, <laughs> and that is the court of public opinion. What people think of you, what people think of me, that's the court we face. And you know what? Whether you like it or not, that happens. People are always thinking of the youth, saying this, and, and, this, and you thinking the same way of them. But then there's the second court. It's the upper court. That court is the court of your conscience. But then Paul said there is a third court. It is the Supreme Court. It's the Supreme Court. And that Supreme Court is what God thinks of you, how God judges you. Verse 3, but with me, look at this is the first, this is the lower court here. Here's the lower court. <laughs> but with me, it is very small thing that I should be judged by you. Another translation, I think it was Phelps' translation, put it this way. It matters very little to me what anyone thinks of me. Can I get an amen? amen. <laughs> Question. Is the Apostle Paul callous? No. Is he contemptuous of people's opinion of him? No. In fact, <clears throat> to the contrary, Paul was not immune to the criticism of his critics. In fact, he defended his apostleship with passion. He was deeply hurt by false rumors and innuendos and false accusations by those who hated his stand for the truth and they wanted to water down the gospel. Even here in this passage, uh, he, he's doing exactly that. He's, Paul was sensitive about the opinion of others. So I, well, don't you misunderstand this. Yet, listen to me, yet, can you say yet? Yes. Yet, his life was not directed by them or their criticism. His stand for the truth was not steered or changed direction of his life because of them and their criticism. 
their criticism did not consume his energy. Oh my goodness, what are people thinking of me? Oh, what are they saying about me? Their attack did not occupy his time. Their innuendo did not dare him from preaching the truth boldly and let the chips fall where they may. Uh, their false accusations did not compel him to compromise the truth. Sadly, sadly, that is not the case today whether it be in the church or public life in general, so many are accommodating to the lowest common denominator. Accommodating, accommodating, accommodating until one day we're not going to recognize the gospel at all. A well-known journalist from yesteryears, very really uh, an honorable man, had a great deal of respect uh, even by those who did not agree with him by the name of Horace Greeley. Some of you might know the name. Here's what Horace Greeley said. Fame is a viper. Vapor. Popularity is an accident. Riches take wings. Those who cheer you today will curse you tomorrow. The only thing endures is character. So much for a guy who doesn't even call himself an evangelical. And Paul said, with me, it's very little thing. What do you think of me? It's so small. It's not impacting me in any way at all that I should be judged by you. This is the lower court. But then the, he said there is a second court. Now, by the way, he doesn't use the word court here. In case you go home and stop reading the passage, he where did he get this? I am making it up. <laughs> okay? So, so you understand. <laughs> But, but this is the, to give you a, 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 a way by which you can identify with this. And he said there is a, there's a higher court than public opinion. That's a, the, the court of your conscience. Question. Is our conscience 100% accurate judge and guide? No. Paul said it is not. Let me explain. You see, the conscience can approve or disapprove something depending on our upbringing, depending on our learned pattern of behavior. Um, if a person is brought up in a biblically sound home and, um, and, and they learn godly behavior and they're guided by the Holy Spirit and the Word of God, then yes, in most cases, their enlightened conscience is going to guide them. But if they were brought up by people who are away from the Lord and, and away from understanding biblical views and the Christian faith, then at this point their conscience cannot be trusted at all. Why? Because we were taught and therefore our life pattern and conscience are based on erroneous principles. Here's the Word of God here. Verse Chapter 4, Paul was saying, even the conscience that is enlightened by the Holy Spirit can rationalize wrong things and silence neutral things. It all depends on how you're trained. And that is why I am so honored this morning, and I'll be down there talking to them in a few minutes, uh, that we have 40 uh, young men and women joining the, 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 the Lord's table this morning. You see, in this church, our call is to 
aid, support, help the parents to help their children think biblically. That's the call of our lives here in this, in the, in this church and in this ministry. Help think biblically. Here's the bottom line. Listen, I always get to the bottom line. It, 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 this whole explanation is that the servant of God does not live by the opinion of others. The servant of God does not follow his or her conscience entirely. Verse 4 and Paul himself values the conscience. He's not, he's not dismissing it. He values it. And he himself knows of no evidence in his conscience to condemn him. He himself is very clear about this. But he said, my conscience cannot justify me before God. And that is why we have a third court. The Supreme Court. The Supreme Court. And that court whose opinion and judgment matters the most. Verse 5. God's evaluation is what matters the most. God's verdict is what matters the most. God's judgment is what matters the most. Why? Because people judge on the basis of appearance, and often wrong. Our conscience judges based on learned behavior pattern or felt needs. Ah, but only God judges us on the basis of motive. Did you get that? Only God judges us on the basis of motive. Beloved, listen to me. Only each of us individually, 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 each one of us individually can judge our motive. No one can judge another person's motive. Can I get an amen? amen. I've known and loved my wife for 50 years. I cannot judge her motive because no one can accurately judge another person's motive. Only we can judge our own motives. Please, don't misunderstand me. Don't misunderstand me. It is nice... When people, especially believers, encourage us and support us, it's lovely. It is nice when our conscience does not condemn us. It's lovely. But it is a far more immense and beyond description when you hear the Lord's approval. I shared with you and I uh, talked about the 2020 vision a few weeks ago. And, you know, I've been going around saying I'm in the fourth quarter of my life. And then Marty Johnson, who played football, knows all about football, said, no, you're not. You're in overtime. <laughs> he said, the good thing about overtime is it's a sudden death. <laughs> and that's fine. But let me tell you, ever since I was a young man, I've always been motivated. And there's nothing that I have worked on. It's just I don't understand it. But I've always been motivated with what I call the audience of one. It's always throughout my ministry. 
But as I do come to this overtime, it's becoming more intense, more intense, that I care deeply of wanting to hear from the lips of my Savior. Well done, good and faithful servant. Let's recap here for a minute. True humility manifested in obedience to the truth of the Word of God. True humility is manifested in the acknowledging of the sovereignty of God. True humility is manifested in our deep desire to please the Lord. And this is really, my beloved friends, the crux, the core of the problem with the Corinthian church. That really is the core problem that Paul is dealing with. These folks were believers, yes. They were saved, yes. But they were prideful. They were boastful. They were the original writers of Frank Sinatra's song. Now I'm not going to sing it. (laughs) I did it my way. They were the progenitors of looking out for number one. They were the epitome of, I am okay, you're okay. And Paul is saying, at the very core of their division and factionalism is pride. Uh, They were proud of their human wisdom. They were proud of their human leaders. They were proud of taking side and, and creating division, and yet... In their case, the leaders themselves were godly and humble, and they did not want to see this happen. That's why I said, don't go beyond what's written. Sadly today, we have leaders who ferment and develop and cherish, eagerly promote themselves, and want followers to follow them, not Jesus. Now, this is different from the Corinthian leaders, who are far from wanting people to follow Paul or Apollos or Cephas, which is Peter. They want him to follow Christ. Follow Christ. Don't follow a man. I don't care who he is. The people were using these leaders to get their prideful agenda fulfilled. They were using these leaders to fulfill their carnal lust for power. They were using their leaders to exalt themselves. They were using their leaders as a focal point for their own pride. Look at verse 6. He said, Now, brethren, I have applied all these things to myself and to Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, Do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not take pride in one man or another. Can I get an amen? amen? Now, please don't miss this. I'm going to tell you, it's very important. Don't miss it. Don't miss it. If and when loving gratitude to someone for their contribution and their ministry becomes contaminated with pride and conceit, that church is in trouble. It may take too, ta- too long, but it w- is in trouble. The sign of trouble is here. 
Now, here's something you can be sure of. Whatever God intends for unity in His body, the church, Satan always intends it and means it for division. In fact, the word arrogant that the Apostle Paul uses here is used literally to mean an inflated view of one's opinion, an inflated view of one's uh, 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 ideas. That stubbornness, sadly, can have disastrous consequences. May God forbid that anybody at the sound of my voice fall in this trap. I was thinking about a story some years ago about a U.S. Navy ship, large battleship. They noticed a small light from in the dark. And the captain immediately got his communication officer. He said, send the following message. Alter your course 10 degrees south. Immediately came the answer. No, you alter your course 10 degrees north. I mean, the captain became livid. Who is this who's questioning my authority? And then he immediately sent a second message. Alter your course 10 degrees south. Thought the second message was ignored. I am asking you to turn to alter your course 10 degrees north. By that time, the captain was furious to say the least. He said, this is Captain Smith of the U.S. Navy. I am ordering you. I'm a battleship, and I'm ordering you. Change course. Alter course. Ten degrees south. Came the answer. I am Seaman Third Class Jones. You alter your course ten degrees north. I am a lighthouse. Now, beloved, how many times pride sets us on a collision course with the lighthouse? How many times pride sets us on a collision course with the light of the world? How many times arrogance and pride make us think that we know better than God and His Word, insisting on our own course of action? And that, my beloved friends, brings us to a collision course with the Rock of Ages. Think with me, think with me. How many who have allowed pride to control their foggy thinking and lost perspective? I've seen it in my 45 years of ministry. How many times pride made us adamant not to submit to the authority of the Word of God, and we think we know better in this 21st century. Here's another problem. Here's another problem. Pride is not an orphan. Say that with me. Pride is not an orphan. He has a lot of siblings. And he has a twin sister. named arrogance and boasting. And that is why Paul said, verse 7, 
Why do you brag? Why do you think that you are above other believers? Why do you think that you or your group are better than others? Paul said, in reality, we have nothing to brag about. Why? Because everything we have is given to us. How can you brag about that which is given to you? Ultimately, he said, we're all made of the same stuff that ultimately we're all redeemed by the same Lord. Ultimately, we're all given the same Spirit. And when you are given something, you can't brag about it. It should bring us to our knees in gratitude and thanksgiving. And beloved, I don't have to tell you, gratitude is becoming a rare commodity in our culture. Verse 8. Paul uses sarcasm here. I love it. I love it that I'm not the only one. Paul uses sarcasm, and he calls them kings. You see, the Corinthians believers were actually having the very same problem as the church of Laodicea. You remember the book of Revelation? The church of Laodicea and the book of Revelation where Jesus sent them a letter, and, 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 and they thought that they were rich, needing nothing. And like the Laodicean, they were wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Look at verses 9 to 13. Finally, Paul speaks of the paradox of Christian leadership. If you've never understood the paradox of Christian leadership, you'll see it here. And it is summarized in four words. I'm not going to ask you to say them with me, but just think about this. Four in many ways, some of the younger people are going to think it's disgusting words, but they are, and they are. Four words, spectacle, fools, sufferers, and scum. This is literal words. I'm not making this stuff up. Check me on the Word of God when you go home. But I need to give you a historic background in order for you to understand those verses. You have to understand the historical background to it, because Paul is writing to these people who are living in the Roman Empire. They understood it. They understood. They were living it. It wasn't history like it is to us. It is, they lived in it. And here is how Rome, as you know, Rome conquered the world. They conquered the world. And so whenever they conquered either part of North Africa or in the Middle East, and they conquered that whole Mediterranean basin. Well, whenever they conquered one of those countries, uh, they immediately, after the battle, they come home and they have a victory parade in the main street of Rome. Right at the center, a victory parade. The first people to walk in these parades, the first ones to come in, marching in, are the Roman generals, victorious, bragging about the victory. They are at the front of the parade, followed by the army officers, followed thirdly by the foot soldiers. That is the victory parade. And way, way, way in the back of the parade, the conquered king, with his officers, and they are on a prominent display for all to see, for all to mock and make fun of. 
these prisoners of war were under a death sentence. And they were called spectacles. See, this is where he gets the word, spectacles. <laughs> and Paul refers to them here. And the Apostle Paul is saying to us that a life of a discipleship is a life of servanthood. A life of servanthood is a life of humility. Beloved, in this world, true servants of the living God may be ridiculed, oh, but in heaven they will rule. Uh, in this world, the servants of the living God may be mocked, called fools, <laughs> oh, but blessed are the fools in Jesus' name. In this world, the true servants of the living God may be called names, but they have no time for resentment. They have no time for bitterness. They have no time of fighting. In this world, the servants of the living God might want, who want to live peaceably, listen to me, I know a lot of Christians, they just want to live peaceably, and if they do, they will talk about God in sort of nebulous concepts, uh, they, but they cannot talk about Jesus. Uh, if they want to be treated like a scum, they'd proclaim that Jesus is the only way to salvation and heaven, as happens in our culture and in every culture around the world. That's why I believe with so many other people, we're living in the end times. And that should not surprise us, for this is the story of our Lord and Savior Jesus Himself, the King of all kings, the King of the universe. He was born and raised in obscurity. The king of the universe lived and died poor to make repentant sinners eternally rich. He had a stable for his birthplace and a manger for his cradle. He lived and worked as a carpenter in a despised town where they used to say, can anything good come out of Nazareth? When Jesus began his ministry, he had no organization to support him. He preached without a price. He performed miracles uh, for which he received no compensation. Uh, he said, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. The King of the universe, uh, for doing good, he received crucifixion. At the end of his earthly ministry, he was sold for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave. The one who made all of the trees in the universe hung on a tree. The one who made all of the iron mines in the world, he was nailed to the cross with the iron nails. His uh, burial clothes were gift, and his tomb was a borrowed tomb. He was made a spectacle, a fool and a scum for us for you and for me. But that is not the end of the story. A day is coming soon when his enemies shall be made his footstool. A day is coming soon when those who have pierced him, they're going to pound on their hearts. A day is coming soon when every knee shall bow. A day is coming soon when every tongue shall confess. A day is coming soon when you and I, who have suffered for his name's sake, will reign and rule with him forever. The day is coming soon. And you wait for it. You wait for it. The other day I told, I told my wife. I said, you know, the, the Scripture talks about a crown of life that is 
prepared for me, Paul says, but not only for me, but all who loves his appearing. I was saying to her, I said, you know, I'm going to miss out on all the crowns, but that one I'm going to receive. Every day I'm waiting for his appearance. And beloved, that is why we have every reason to be humble. Our humility is manifested in our obedience to the Word of God, not in surrender to the falsehood of culture, to the pressure of culture. Our humility is manifested in our willingness to judge our motives. Something I do on a regular basis. And that is why I want to conclude by saying, to Him, to Him and Him alone, all glory, majesty, dominion, power, and praise forever and ever. Amen. Stand up. And as we prepare our hearts for the Lord's table, I pray that if the Holy Spirit has spoken to you, if the Holy Spirit says, you have been in the shadows for too long, don't be afraid. Don't be worried about what people call you, for I am with you. And Lord, I praise you. I worship you. I adore you this morning. In your name, Jesus, I pray. Amen. Let's join together in a song.